Open your Bibles or turn in your electronic device to Genesis chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that's in the back, that's on page 2 of, uh, of that Bible. Those of you who were here last week probably recall my, my brother's comments about whether you're using an electronic device or a book, it probably dates you. Well, I'm using a book, but the thing that I found about you know, printed pages that the battery never goes out on this. So I've never had a problem with that. We're going to read Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to note not the whole chapter, but certain uh, verses, starting with verse 5. We'll read down to verse um, 10, stopping actually at verse 9, and then we'll jump down to verse 15. As we read this section, I want you to notice the, the person involved, the place involved, and then the task that is given to the person in this passage. So let us read Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. you're a guest with us, my name's Mark, and I'm one of the pastors, and this summer we are taking various topics that we all encounter on, in, our, in our daily lives, whether those things be things like food, marriage, family, money. This morning we're going to take up the topic of work, and we're going to try to understand work from a biblical perspective. Now, work's a big topic in the Bible, but this morning what we want to do is, is, is dive in to the essence of what work is and sort of Follow it along the story of Scripture, starting in Genesis and moving right through the Bible and dipping in at different points and trying to understand a few things about work. Like, for instance, why is it do, that we, do we want to work? Why is it built into our nature to have a compulsion to work and that we're not really having a fulfilling life without it? Why is it so hard to work? Why are there so many challenges and obstacles and difficulties associated with our labor? And how do we overcome the difficulties and find satisfaction in our work through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the answers for how we view our work all hang on essential theology of the Bible. The knowledge of who God is, why he made the world, our place in it, his plan for the world, and then how the good news of Jesus Christ turns our lives and the way we work upside down. So that's what we want to do this morning. What we're going to do is 
unpack this theme of work under three headings, and I want to go ahead and give you those ahead of time. The first one is work at creation. We're going to spend a few minutes, just a very few minutes, in the first couple chapters of Genesis, just kind of anchoring down and understanding how God created work and why he created work. Then we're going to look at work under the curse, how the fall and the entrance of sin into the world has affected work. And then we're going to spend the vast majority of our time talking about what it means for work in Christ, how we as Christians function differently in, a, in our work as a result of the work of Jesus for us. So that's where we're going to spend the vast majority of our time. That's going to be on point three. I hope to get through points one and two fairly quickly. All right, so let's dip in. First of all, work at creation. Well, Larry just read the t- a key text for us to understand um, how work came into the world. It's God's idea. And it's, it's God's idea because if we remember, Adam is made in the image of God which means he does in many things what God himself is doing. See, work doesn't start with man. Work starts with God. God is the great worker in the Bible. The very first sentence of the Bible is God doing work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, God's a worker, and for six days, he creates. He forms and he fills the earth. And then at the pinnacle of creation, he creates man in his own image, to do what? To form and fill the earth after his pattern, which is work. He places the man in the garden to work it, to keep it. Fundamental to all of that work was cultivation, the cultivation of his creation, bringing out of the creation its latent potential. See, God didn't form the world in such a way that it was just complete. It was all very good, but it was not done. In a sense, his work of creation was not finished. Now, I know he says it was finished, right? And he rested on the seventh day. That's true. But by placing man in the garden and giving man dominion over the earth, his idea was that man would then, according to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as his image, form and subdue and bring out the potential of creation and develop it for the sake of others. So if we just take Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we can begin to form a definition of work. And I just want to give us that definition up front. Work is taking the raw material of God's creation and developing it for the sake of other people. That's what work is. Work is taking the raw material of creation and developing it for the sake of other people. I mean, just think about the various kinds of work. And I'm just going to give us a few examples. Think about musicians. What's going on up here as we sing? That's work. Those, these guys are working for us. What are they doing? They're taking the raw material of sound, something that God created, and they're ordering it for the sake of us so that we can worship God. What am I doing as I preach? I'm taking the raw material of language and words, and I'm trying to develop it in a helpful way for our sake so that we will understand our purpose for work and what God has called us to in it. What about farmers? Well, they take the raw material of soil and seed, and they bring food into our lives. What about carpenters, plumbers, electricians, or mothers, or teachers, or pastors, or hairstylists, or doctors, or lawyers. It's all a form of taking something that God has created, 
that's latent to his creation, part of his creation, and developing it for the sake of other people. You know, God continues his work in the world through our work in the world. Do you believe that? God continues his work in the world through our work in the world. We work because God works, and God is working in and through our work to serve and bless his creation. Think about it. God heals us, right? How does he do that most of the time? Well, you're not feeling well, so you go to the doctor, and the nurse runs some tests, and lab techs identify the problem, and the pharmacist fills the prescription, and you get better in no time. God healed you through about 15 different people. What about God speaking to us? Well, the pastor's preaching God's word. He told me about God's standard. I I realized how sinful I was. He told me the good news of what Christ had done, that everything for my salvation could be found completely in him. And I can be forgiven of all of my sins and given to righteousness is not my own, entitled to heaven, all because of what Jesus has done for me. God spoke to me. Well, he did it through a person. God fed me. You're going to eat here in about 45 minutes. Maybe you drop by Panera Bread or you eat at home or eat at McDonald's or, and a teenager behind the counter serves you some food. Well, God feeds you through that. What about clothing? We're all sitting here clothed. That's because God clothed us through sheep and clothing manufacturers and Target. Well, God shelters us. How did he do that? Through home builders and construction companies and plumbers and electricians. God protects us. How does he do that? Through the Owensboro Police Department, who has pulled me over on occasion when I wasn't wearing a seatbelt one time. And protected me from myself and from others. Well, God gives us pleasure, right? Well, how does he do that? Well, through any number of talents that people use and create. So you get the point. It's, it's this taking what is latent in creation. I mean, this didn't come out of nowhere. The, the iPhone is a product of somebody taking raw materials and developing it for the sake of other people. That is sheer image of God brilliance. Steve Jobs and his team, they are absolutely in the image of God. Even as unbelievers, they are able to see and take raw material in creation. I remember when I first got a a desktop computer and I opened up the inside and I looked in and it's just, you know, it's like an iPhone. It's just chips. And, and you're like, what in the world? How is that able to produce all this stuff? And I realized that God was the one who built that stuff into creation in the beginning. And all men did was discover it and put it together. It's just amazing. The, the greatness of work and the privilege of work. It's part of what it means to be in the image of God. It's part of what it means to be created by God and follow after his example. So work then needs to be shaped by that reality. We are so infected with an American paradigm of work. The American paradigm of work is that it's all about economic exchange, financial remuneration, a pathway to the American dream, a gateway to the weekend... Work in God's eyes is all about taking the raw material of creation and developing it for the sake of serving and blessing other people. 
It's about God honoring human creativity and contribution. That's what work is about. God honoring human creativity and contribution. In other words, God didn't just create us for himself. He created us for other people. As Luther once famously said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So God created us to work, to make an important, ongoing contribution to his creation. So that means that work fundamentally in God's economy is about service. It's a service-oriented idea. It's about serving the Lord and serving others. In fact, Colossians 3, 22 to 25 reminds us of the first. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward you're serving the Lord Christ. So behind every boss, Christian, is the boss. Jesus is our boss. He is the one that we are ultimately working for. But that doesn't mean that... Now, that sounds like it's undoing everything I said. I thought you said work was for other people, not for the Lord. Well, it's for both. It's for... Other people, namely Jesus, and then other people created in his image. Ephesians 6, which we'll get to in our, when we uh, pick back up with Ephesians in the fall, picks up the idea of work as service to other people. It says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service, key word, with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. So it's all about service. John Calvin said, it's not enough when we can say, oh, I work. He says, that's not enough. For one must be concerned whether it is good and profitable to the community and if it's able to serve our neighbors. See, Calvin had the idea. He understood that work is fundamentally about serving other people. So we not only work to serve others, but we also work to provide for ourselves so that we're able to, out of those resources, serve and bless other people, right? Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, obviously assuming that there were some thieves that had become Christians and that were in the church. It says, let them no longer steal, whether time or labor or money or anything. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, our work is always other-oriented. It has a view to blessing others, both in the work itself and what we get from the work by way of financial remuneration. So that's, that's work at creation. That's the ideal. That's the picture. But how many of you really wake up, are going to wake up tomorrow morning or woke up this past Friday, or if you were off Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, how many of you woke up like, wow, I'm, it's awesome. I get to go un, unpack the potentialities of creation today. I get to open up the raw material of creation and steward it for the sake of others. I'm fired up, baby. How many of you felt that way? Show of hands. Exactly. That's what I thought. You don't feel that way. And that's because we don't work in paradise anymore. Right? Work was part of paradise. Work will be part of paradise. You can have a temporary season of retirement here. New heavens, new earth, no retirement. We're working for the Lord for eternity. I mean, imagine the kind of stuff we're going to create there as we unfold the potentialities of the galaxies. So you've got all that great hope held out in front of us. We've, we look back at Genesis and we see that great pattern and then we're like, yeah, that's not where I live. That's because we live under the curse. When sin came into the world, Genesis chapter 3, work became hard. Let's look at verses 
17 through 19 of Genesis chapter 3. This is after Adam and Eve have sinned, death and sin have entered the world, and it affects everything, including work. And to Adam, he said, now God's moved in, moved in on him. He's pronouncing judgment upon each person. He's already pronounced judgment upon the serpent in verse 14 and 15. Now he's pronouncing judgment on the woman in verse 16. Now he's pronouncing judgment on the man. And to Adam, he said, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I have command, of which I commanded you, shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So the fall has brought long-lasting and far-reaching changes to our work. Our work has a completely new dimension to it under the curse. Toil, difficulty, thorns, thistles, sweat, it has become a heavy yoke to bear. Where it was once a light, enjoyable task. Now don't get me wrong, they worked hard, but they didn't have, before the fall, Adam and Eve, but they didn't have to deal with the thorns, the thistles, the difficulties, the sweat that the curse has brought upon the ground. Adam and Eve's rebellion results in work becoming more difficult. So because of the fall, works hard. It involves sweat and toil and thorns and thistles. Those are things that get in our skin and irritate us. <laughs> things that make work more difficult. You can't just, fa- to use an agricultural metaphor here, because that's all they had in Eden. I mean, they can't plow the ground as easily. They can't bring out that raw material as easily. They've got to deal with thorns and briars and toil and sweat and the heat of the sun and fatigue, all that stuff. They can't, they can't engage creation the way they want to engage creation. They can't serve people the way they want to serve people because of the presence of sin. To use modern examples of thorns and thistles, work involves stress and overtime and setbacks and arrogant bosses and boring meetings and difficult relationships and urgent deadlines after you've had a computer crash and dealing with difficult customers or serving a demanding boss or having to let an employee go or downsize a labor force or facing a family's mountain of dirty laundry or lingering unemployment. All those sorts of things affect our work under the curse. And it kind of tends to take us in two directions. Our sin and how we interact with work tends to take us in one of two directions. One direction is we make an idol of work, which means we over-identify with it and make it the sum and substance of our existence. And so you've got workaholism and all that stuff where people just can't let go of work and they so are consumed by it 60, 70 hours, week after week after week, being eaten up with work to where it's killing their spiritual life, killing their family, killing their church. I mean, it's just consuming them. And that's, that's a result of the, of the fall and the curse. Then there's also the tendency not only to make an idol of work, but to be idle in work. That is to so disengage and to under-identify with work that we become lazy or put in the most minimum effort necessary or depend on family or government to help us when we're perfectly able to do the work ourselves. So that, that's the two tendencies. We either over-identify with work or we under-identify with work. If we over-identify it, we make it all about 
everything. It's, it's the driver. It's what we think about. It's what we dream about. It's what we're after. It's what, it's what would cause us nightmares if we ever lost it. And then there's the under-identifying where we become idle, I-D-L-E, in our work, lazy. And we basically take that bumper sticker idea that says, you know, if you've probably seen this on a bumper sticker, hard work never killed anyone, but why take the chance? You know, or maybe you've seen the other bumper sticker. I work, I give 100% at work every week. 23% on Monday, 7% on Tuesday, and it goes right down. And by the time you get through Monday or Friday, you got 100%. Well, that's, that's not the biblical vision, but it's the reality of work under the curse. Gene Veith, author, author, author of a very helpful book called God at Work, writes about this when he says, The doctrine of vocation or work is utterly realistic. And a part of realism is to acknowledge the hardships, frustrations, the failures that we also sometimes encounter in our vocations. Yes, work can be satisfying and fulfilling, but sometimes at the same time, it can be arduous, boring, and futile. Yes, it is wonderful to have children, but they can also break a parent's heart. Yes, marriage is a blessing, but there are also sometimes fights, arguments, and emotional roller coasters. Yes, it is good to love one's country, but citizenship becomes a burden when the leaders are corrupt and the laws are unjust. Yes, we cannot do without our church, but sometimes it is maddeningly frustrating in the way it operates. Our vocations, like the rest of the earth, are under a curse, one directly directed explicitly at marriage, childbirth, and work. Adam and Eve were driven out of paradise, and a cherubim keeps us out with a flaming sword so we can expect no utopia, no perfect nation, no perfect congregation. And yet the seed of the woman did come, and through the ser- though the serpent bruised his heel, he crushed the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. Jesus did not remove the curse, though we remain in its shadow, but he did so by suffering. Sorry, Jesus did remove the curse, though we remain in its shadow, but he did so by suffering and dying for us on the cross. Now, it is great that right, he reminds us of that right at the end of this quote, that right in the middle of this whole pronouncement of judgment by God, the curse that he gives in Genesis 3, right in the middle of that, we encounter this gospel hope, this gospel promise, the first glimmer of the gospel in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, God talking to the serpent now, and between your offspring, that is between the devil's children, and her offspring, that is the children of God, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the idea is that there is going to be a man who will come from the seed of the woman. This is, of course, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary. As he comes into the world, he is going to deal a decisive blow to sin and Satan. And that makes all the difference in how now, even though that the fulfillment of Christ's second coming and the perfection that's going to come and that he's going to bring with him when he returns, all that's coming. Still, in the midst of our work now as Christians, we should be marked by a discernible, tangible hope that carries us through the curse, that carries us through the difficulty, and at least shows some glimmer of what it was like back in paradise. All right? So that's where, that's where we're going to spend the, 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 the next 20 minutes of this sermon, is just unpacking what work in Christ is, is supposed to be like. All right? Here's what Tom Nelson says in his book, Work Matters. He says, the after picture, the, 
of the, Bi- the Bible paints for us, after the toilsome nature of our work as a result of the devastating effects of sin, is anything but encouraging. Our work is not how it was designed to be, and we feel it deeply. However, the good news of the gospel is that the tragedy of our fall is not the end of the story. There is good news for you and your work. Though your work may be difficult and demanding, you can approach your work with a sense of hope and excitement that God can and will do remarkable things in and through the work he has called you to do. Though sin entered the world, so did the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, how did he enter the world? All right, so we've seen, just recalibrate us here. Work at creation, work under the curse. Now we're going to talk about work in Christ. When Christ came and he was growing up, What did he spend the vast majority of his time doing? Working. He was a carpenter, Mark 6 reminds us. For the first 30 years of his life, well, not when he was a baby, but you know, when he grew up and he's working with Joseph, and as he grows up and as he's able and as he increases in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men, like Luke 2 says, he gets a job and he works in a carpenter shop. In Nazareth, way before he ever started his three years of ministry at age 30, the vast majority of Jesus' life was spent working in a carpenter shop. He had a trade. And that's why in Mark 6, verses 1 through 3, the crowd is so astonished at this hometown boy's wisdom and power when he starts preaching and ministering. Because their eyes were used to interacting with him as a guy that made stools and tables and swung a hammer. And Now let's just stop and think about that for a moment, okay? The Son of God was sent to earth on a mission of redemption through preaching the gospel of a kingdom and showing the reality of this kingdom by miracles of power. And the majority of his years on earth are spent making things in an obscure carpentry shop in Nazareth. Being a carpenter was not below Jesus or some poor use of his gifts. The very one whose hands not only created the world, also created the very wood that he was crafting in a carpentry shop. He created the wood that he was crafting. The craftsman of the universe spent a great deal of time during his earthly life crafting things with his own hands. The one who literally made mankind from the dust of the earth was making chairs for them to sit on in their houses. The one who created all things, who made all things, was was working with the very things that he created. While Jesus may have been more than a carpenter... He was not less than a carpenter. And he did not view his work as a carpenter as somehow less important. He was called to be a carpenter for the majority of his life. Dallas Willard says, quote, If he were to come today as he did then, he could carry out his mission through most any decent and useful occupation. He could be a clerk or an accountant in a hardware store, a computer repairman, a banker, an editor, a doctor, a waiter, a teacher, a farmhand, a lab technician, or construction worker. He could run a house cleaning service or repair automobiles. In other words, if he were to come today, he could very well do what you do. He could very well live in your apartment or house, hold down your job, have your education and life prospects, and live within your family surroundings and time. 
None of this would be the least hindrance to the eternal kind of life that was his by nature and becomes available to us through him. See, it is through work. It was through work for 30 years that Christ identified with us. He experienced the exhaustion of work, the frustration of work. When he entered work, he didn't just get this little bubble of paradise that he got to work in. You know what I'm saying? He didn't just like, you know, he entered, oh, it's Jesus. So his work is a lot less frustrating. Um, I don't think his boss was perfect. His earthly father, Joseph, was a sinner. And he would have had to have been under the authority of a sinful father, experiencing the temptations of working with somebody who probably got angry, made unreasonable demands, became frustrated, made unwise decisions, overlooked hard effort, expect, jo- expect Jesus to just continue working. And his customers weren't perfect. The people who were buying the furniture. Jesus would have dealt with difficult and demanding people in the workplace. And he would experience the temptations that would have come from people who complained and were troublesome. And, and why did he do all this? Why did he spend the majority of his life working as a carpenter and not in full-time Christian ministry? Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 5, 7-9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, listen to this, although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal life to all who obey him. Those are critical verses in the book of Hebrews for helping us understand why those years spent in the carpentry shop in Nazareth were not a waste of time. Jesus was identifying with us as a sympathetic high priest. He entered into our difficult work situation Jesus lived his life to learn obedience through what he suffered and be made perfect. Now, it's not talking about perfection as far as his essential deity. Jesus was perfect. We know that. But as the God-man, Christ, the eternal Son of God, who took on human flesh and became a human being and entered into work, he needed to learn some things. He needed to learn how to obey God in the midst of difficult circumstances, so that he might be perfected through those difficult circumstances. God had a work to do in Christ before he had a work to do through Christ. And you know what? It's the same with us. It's the same with us. Notice the the logic of Hebrews 5 again. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to his able to save him from death, and he was heard. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So he didn't get the special privilege. Even though he was the eternal son of God, he still had to learn obedience through what he suffered. And then being made perfect, he'd become the source of eternal life to all who obey him. So here's a transforming truth for your work life, all right? This is fundamental to what it means to work in Christ. What if our work lives existed not so much for what we got out of work, 
but for what God did in and through us in our work. What if work, along with marriage and family and other things that we've seen in this series, was a part of God making you more like Christ? What if it was a huge part of God's sanctification process for you? Because it was a huge part of God's sanctification process for Jesus. A transform Now, that sanctification process was not sanctification from sin. Jesus didn't need to get sin out of his life. But he did need to learn what it was like to be tempted by sin. And suffer as we suffered, yet without sin, so that he could be our perfect high priest. But don't, don't get me wrong, Jesus got sanctified. He learned to walk through trials and difficulties with trust in God. And he did that for the majority of his life in the context of work. That's what I'm trying to pass on to you this morning. That, I want you to get that. Jesus understands. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to labor hard. And to have it unfu- to, to, to be, to some degree, unfulfilling, difficult, struggle. And this is a huge transforming truth that we need to get a hold of. God is very much at work in your work. He is transforming us in our work, through our work. He is using our work to make something out of us. God has not stopped his work of creation with you. The same good work he began in you, he intends to complete it. And your job is not in opposition to that plan. It's the means of that plan. You ever think about that? It's like, why does God got me you know, working and I'm doing all this stuff? Well, it's not, it's very spiritual. It's very spiritual. It's the point. It's why you spend most of your life doing it. I mean, wouldn't it be very counterproductive of God to have a sanctification process for you that's outside of work? That would be really strange. It's like God sanctifies me hmm, in my sleep uh, and at church. But no, I mean, most of the time you're, you're either eating, working, or recreating. That's the vast majority of the rest of your time. So, the, but the majority of that two-thirds of my time that I'm awake of the day, at least a third of it, is spent working. So God's got something profound on his agenda to get done through that one-third. And it's to help you encounter the difficulties, the challenges, the obstacles in a way that will form Christ in you, develop a heart of trust, love, and service toward others. Now, the question is, how does that happen? How does that happen? And that's where I want us to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for a few minutes as we wrap up. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians New Testament chapter 4. And we're going to anchor down in just a few verses here and get, a, get an idea of what God's up to with all this. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Paul's talking about, in the broader context, about a life pleasing to God. And he's already discussed some of the things that we've already discussed in our extraordinary series so far. Things like marriage and love for other people. And in verse 9, he takes up the idea of our work life. Actually, in verse Verse 11, he does that. But just to get the context, let's start with verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 
For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I mean, it's like his great, like, command, like, in the letter. I mean, he, he has other commands. He talks about our character and our moral purity and all that stuff. But he, as far as what should occupy our time, he says, I want you to occupy your time with working. He says, lead a quiet life. That doesn't mean don't talk. Okay, it doesn't mean be quiet, don't talk to anybody. It doesn't mean that. It means be content to be unknown and unnoticed and to live a quiet life in that sense. You don't have to be flashy. You don't have to do something that sizzles, that's just got the attention of the world. No, just be content to work your job. It says, mind your own affairs. That's focus on your work. Don't be a busybody. Focus on work. Work. When you're at work, work. And then he says, work with your own hands. That is, carry on the work in which you're engaged. Don't just, don't just put up with it. Be engaged in it. Throw your heart into it. Get after it. And why does he want us to do that? Because it's God's sanctification process for us. Verse 3, go back to the beginning of the chapter. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay? So verse 3 He says, this is the will of God that you become more like Christ, that you grow in holiness. And then he says, all right, you've got to abstain from stuff. You've got to put away sexual immorality. You've got to learn to love people. But I want you to, as part of that sanctification process, commit yourself to living quietly, minding your own affairs, and doing hard work. Now, why does he say to do that? Because that's the way we get sanctified. It's through the mundane life of family church and work that God sanctifies us, brings us to a place of living a life of pleasing to God and becoming more and more like Christ. I mean, that's, that's why he's writing the letter in part. He closes first Thessalonians chapter five, verse 23 and 24 with this reminder. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So there's that encouragement that we will be sanctified, that God is up to something good in the midst of our difficulties and work and challenges. So let me conclude with a few quotes, all right, and a few ideas, just an application to take away, all right? We've seen what work was supposed to be like at creation. We've seen what work is is under the curse, and we've seen what it can be in Christ, all right? So I want you to think about your work differently from here on out. I want you to think about your work differently as you go into this week. I want you to think about this, that the greatest challenge that you're going to face in your work this week and throughout your work life is not what happens to you in your workplace. It's what happens within you at the soul level as that stuff is happening to you. Okay? It's what happens at the soul level. How are you responding to it? Are you causing... See, I had a huge reality check for this when I was teaching for a long time. And I haven't stopped working, you know, but, but when I was teaching for those 11 years, I, I was not aware, and this is my fault, of what was going on at the soul level 
through my challenges at work. I was allowing it to make me bitter and hostile and angry and impatient and easily irritated. I was not serving my students. I was not taking the raw material of, crea- of, of knowledge and imparting it to them, not as some guy on the mountain passing it down. That's a great way to not teach sixth graders. But as far as engaging them, right, and doing it joyfully and willingly, because God was wanting to do something in my heart, and I wasn't letting him do it. And I say that to my shame now. I didn't see it at the time. But God got a hold of me in a, in a couple of years that, as I, as I started to finish off the career, it got a little bit better at that level. But God was wanting to do something at the soul level of me, teach me how to be a servant, teach me how to be a, a lover of people. And I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be that. And so I just want to let you know, God's doing the same thing in you through your work. And I would encourage you to not have to reap the bitter fruit that I reaped for a couple of years. Let the Lord do a deep soul work in you through your work. Don't let it make you hard, crusty, irritable. Let it make you a soft, patient lover of people. Because that's what a sanctified, fruit of the Spirit Christian looks like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what God wants to do in you through your work. Is it happening? Is it happening? The greatest opportunity our jobs afford us is not the reward it brings or the important contribution we can make to the common good, as as good as that is, as significant as those things are. Rather, the greatest opportunity is the glorious conduit our work becomes in conforming us to greater Christlikeness. Work is the primary place God gives us in our lives to practice his two greatest commands, to love God and to love neighbor. Our, the challenges of our workplace are not obstacles in our lives. They are opportunities that God is using to lead us closer to Christ and conform us more to him. And I close this sermon with this quote from Gene Veith. He says, it may seem strange to think that such mundane activities as spending time with your spouse and children, going to work, and taking part in your community are part of your holy calling, 1 Peter 2.5, and that the daily grind can be a spiritual sacrifice, Romans 12.1. It's not as strange, though, as what currently tears many Christians apart, a spiritual life that has little to do with their families, their work, and their cultural life. Many Christians treat other people horribly, including their spouses and children, while cultivating their own personal piety. Many well-intentioned Christians lose themselves in church work and church activities while neglecting their marriages, their children, and their other callings. But ordinary life is where God has placed us. The family, the workplace, the local church, the culture, and the public square are where he has called us. Work is where sanctification takes place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of working for you. We thank you for the reminder this morning of one of the main purposes of our work, which is what you are doing in us through it. We pray that we would yield to your holy agenda and that you would sanctify us completely, forming the fruit of the Spirit more deeply in us as a result of our work, all for your glory. We thank you that you're so engaged with us. We thank you that you love us so deeply. That, as, that you're so committed to changing us and 
what you've begun in us, you intend to bring to completion. Would you do that in and through our work for your glory in Jesus' name? Amen.